Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Mike Hall, CEO of Borrego Energy. Borrego is on a mission to accelerate the adoption of renewable energy. They have a complete suite of renewable energy services, three independent business units, development, EPC, and O&M, or solar maintenance and repair. Now, Mike is a board member for Borrego, and he was also one of the original co-founders of the business, joining his brother Aaron at what was at the time called Borrego Solar in 2002. So Mike's seen a lot of twists and turns in the solar industry and in the broader energy industry. And we have a great discussion in this episode about what the landscape looked like when they started the company so many years ago, how they've navigated the twists and turns along the way, how solar has evolved, what some of the big levers are that have led to its increasing deployment, where it stands today, some of the barriers holding it back. And we also talk about storage. We talk about policy. We talk about things like perovskites and a bunch of other things about solar renewables and how they fit into the clean energy transition. Mike, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Jason. Thanks for being here. I'm Excited for this one. This is a topic area that has come up so many times, and I don't think we've put it front and center yet. We've got hit it from some adjacent angles, but you're kind of right in the trenches doing the hard work, which is who we want to hear from. So thanks for agreeing to do this. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So why don't we just take it from the top? What is Borrego? Yeah. So Borrego, we work in the downstream part of primarily solar and storage, but renewable energy broadly. And we work with companies that own renewable energy projects. And for those companies, which are generally independent power producers, IPPs, and some 
regulated utilities who have the authority to own generation. But for those companies, we provide them full lifecycle services. So they need projects to invest in. And so we have a greenfield development business where we sell projects typically at the shovel ready stage for them to invest in. Then they need those projects delivered. And we do that through our delivery business, which is primarily a classic EPC full wrap, but also we do some interesting things for customers on the major material procurement side through a new business line we launched. And then after the systems are up and running, we have an O&M business where we do preventative maintenance, repair work, technology upgrades, disaster recovery, repowering. And so it's full lifecycle services. And so some of our customers contract with us across two or three of those lines and some just across one. We really try and meet the customers where they're at. And we've historically really been focused on what we call the middle market, which is CNI, solar, solar plus storage, and then community solar. And within that market last year, like with McKenzie and their leaderboard, we were the number one EPC provider with about 11, 11.5% share. I think we were about double the number two provider. But we've, in 2019, we really changed the scope and the vision for the company to try to move from being a middle market leader to figuring out how we can lead the entire market and gigawatts developed, delivered, and maintained. And so we have been moving into the utility scale market, the sub 200 megawatt utility scale market. That's basically who we are. We're about 450 people in the West, the Midwest, and the Northeast primarily. And we've been at this for a long time. I started with Borrego co-founding it, not quite see, 19 years ago. <laughs> so we've been around for a long time in the renewable energy industry, you know, trying to fight a good fight and change the world. So what's the origin story for the company? How did it come about and why? Yeah, so it's an interesting story. So the origins, like the real start actually dates all the way back to the early 80s, where this gentleman named Jim Ricard, who was a professor at San Diego State in astrophysics, and his wife, Grace Ricard, they moved out to Borrego Springs, is where the name comes from, which is in eastern San Diego County. And there was no grid infrastructure out there. And so they built an off-grid PV-powered home. And then other people slowly started moving out to Borrego Springs. And so they were building two to three PV-powered homes a year. And so it was this very small side business throughout the 80s and 90s. And then in 2000, my brother Aaron Hall was in college at Northwestern. He took an entrepreneurship class and he had to write a business plan. And he was home for, I think he was home for like spring break or something. And he was talking to Jim, who was a family friend. And they wrote up a fictitious business plan to actually do PPAs, grid-connected PPAs in California. And when my brother graduated from college, he, he'd always been an entrepreneur. And so he convinced my dad and Jim to each put in 20K. And they started a garage business doing rooftop solar on people's homes. Started with friends and families and expanded from there. So the company was refounded and became my family's business in 2001. Yeah, and it was a real garage business. We had a garage in my family's house, my parents' house in San Diego, and I brought in a third co-founder, and we worked out of his loft in Berkeley. And, you know, it was real humble roots. We would go into people's homes, try and sell them five kilowatt systems, and then come back a couple of weeks later with a tool belt and put it in ourselves. So, yeah, it's grown from there. It's been, it's been a really fun ride. And maybe talk a bit about what the solar market looked like at that time and compare and contrast that to, to where yeah. it sits today. 
It was really different in almost every way. So it was tiny. So the whole solar market in the US was maybe a couple few megawatts. Like that was annual installs. Now, if you drive around a California suburb, you see PV panels on, you know, like every fifth home. Back then, you didn't see them anywhere. Like there were basically none. We were putting the first ones in. The industry was tiny. I remember going to my first, I didn't call it SPI back then, but it was the equivalent conference and they fit everybody in a ballroom. So it was quite small. And the technology was was really far from where it is today on every level. So things were expensive. So solar modules cost, um, they were bouncing up and down, but they got up to about four bucks a watt. And when I started, they were in like the mid threes, they went down to three and then they went up to four bucks a watt. The form factors were really small. We started, we were installing like 110 and 120 watt modules. And the technology is really unsophisticated. The first grid tight inverters we put in had 100% failure rates. They all had to be repaired. And even when I really, when the very beginning, they fixed this pretty quickly, just to give you a sense of how immature the technology was, we had to like unpack the panels, the solar modules, and they had no connectors on them. So we actually had to open up the junction box in the back of each panel and hardwire in some conductors and then run flexible conduit between each solar module. So that's just like how immature the product and supply chain was. It got better real quick within a year of me starting in this industry. They figured out that wiring problem and SMA made an inverter that actually worked. And so things things started to get better quickly, but it was pretty immature. And really, we were all figuring it out. You know, stuff just didn't come out of the box and work. So it was fun, but different. Yeah. And how would you characterize where we are now, both relative to then, but also relative to where we need to go? Yeah, well, we've come a long way. I mean, so I, I don't think that we dreamed that it would be possible to build solar power plants, even at the megawatt scale at around a dollar a watt. And I don't know, they don't generally actually cost a dollar a watt all in, but we're pretty close to that. I mean, when we were started, it was it was eight and nine dollars a watt, even for commercial scale. And so we've come really far on the cost side. And I think we have further to go on the quality side, but we've come a long way on the quality side in terms of the products. The industry is obviously much larger. And I think the most just I talk to our team about this all the time. The most exciting thing for me, having been in this industry for almost two decades, is that probably for the last one to two years, there's really been a paradigm shift where it's uh, gone from what it was like when I started, which is, hey, let's really try and get a lot of renewables in and get a piece of the pie and show that renewables can be a replacement for fossil fuel and that there is another way of doing things to now it's a situation where I think everybody accepts that the future is a renewable future, right? It's just a question of how fast we get there. The, some point in the future, it's going to be a lot of solar, a lot of wind, a lot of storage, and exactly what that storage looks like, we'll see, and not a lot of fossil fuels. And it's become inevitable, and it wasn't at all inevitable when I started. And so that's probably the, been the most exciting part of this journey is just reaching that point and seeing that it's coming. And now it's just a question of how fast we can make it happen. So that's been great. And what about from a customer 
adoption standpoint. So where are we now in terms of penetration? And then where are we now in terms of satisfaction for customers that do take on these pretty significant, complicated projects? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, nationally, our penetration is still quite small. I think we're about, and I think globally even, we're still just a few points of the total energy mix. So there's a lot of room to grow. And I think, you know, we're continuing to see that in the market. We're continuing to see demand grow. And there's a lot of different pockets of demand, and we can talk about that. And then when you ask about customer satisfaction, I think there's different customer segments. There's the starting at the small, there's the residential segment, which is where we started, but where we actually don't play and participate anymore. There's the what people call CNI, which they're when they talk about that, they're generally talking about behind the meter, what we call behind the meter solar, where you're putting solar on top of a building or in a parking lot or in land adjacent to the building, you're directly feeding that building with solar. And you can also couple that with storage for various applications, cost saving applications or backup applications. And then there are utilities who are buying for compliance requirements. And then there are corporations who are large buyers and are buying such large amounts that they're generally not mostly investing in those on-site projects. They just can't get enough. And they're buying from off-site power plants using PPAs or virtual PPAs and things like that. And I think by, if I were to just generalize, I think by and large, the market is satisfied. The technology has been proven to work, but there's, there's always room for improvement. And I think, yeah, I think there are a number of ways. I mean, I think going in reverse, the utilities and the grid operators, you know, especially out here in California, have started to realize, okay, if we're going to have a lot of solar penetration, that's great, but it starts to cause issues. It causes issues like the duck curve. They've had to curtail lots of not just solar, but renewables generally. And so they're starting to grapple with really what it means to be successful <laughs> in pursuing your renewable energy goals and having a lot of penetration. I'm further away from the consumer side. I think generally consumers are happy. There have been some stories about consumer issues, which I'm not an expert on. Well, I mean, I'm not really an expert on, but like I know that the industry association has dealt with consumer protection and trying to put in place consumer protection rules and best practices and negotiating with regulators over that. So, yeah, I think there have been those those issues of, you know, slick salespeople maybe taking advantage of unsophisticated buyers. I think it's a really small percentage of the total market, but it has happened. I think on the commercial side, I think customers have, again, by and large, been really happy with the purchases. And we worked a lot in the public sector for a long time and really were able to save school districts and community colleges and public entities, airports, a lot of money. And I think, I guess one thing I'll say there is, I think that the behind the meter customers, whether it be corporate or government, who realized that when they bought these systems and they were making these purchases, that there was a maintenance obligation along with them and budgeted for that and planned for that, I think have done well and been happy. I think there have been some, I think less recently, but more in kind of the mid early days behind the meter customers who purchased these things that, ah, oh, there's new moving parts, there's no maintenance. And they've maybe had unpleasant surprises that, yeah, these, these systems, while they are simple and they do 
have generally great availability. They do require maintenance, both preventative maintenance and reactive maintenance, if you want to get that return on investment. And so if you go into it knowing what you're going into, then I think you're generally happy. Given how far the costs have come down, what do you think the biggest drivers were of that? And what are the key takeaways there as we maybe look at other technologies that are less mature? Yeah, there, so there have been a few major contributors. I mean, the most obvious one is just the price of the generating component itself. So the solar modules, like I said, when we started, they were, call it $4 a watt, and now they sell for $0.30 cents a watt. So you're talking more than you know, 90% reduction in cost. So that's been tremendous. That hasn't been all of it. A lot of it has been just the sophistication and maturity of the technology and the engineering of the products generally. So like the extreme case, the fact that when I started, you had to hardwire those panels and now they just snap together. But the form factor also has changed massively. So it is much less expensive to build a system when each block that you handle is three or 400 watts than when each block you handle is 100 watts. So, and the efficiency has been driven up. So for every square feet of glass you're handling, you're getting a lot more watts. The inverter efficiencies have been driven up. The physical structural systems that you use to mount the things either on the ground or on the roof are much easier to put together and be put together in a fraction of the labor hours. The labor force has been trained and can be much more productive than we were in the early days when everybody was doing it for the first time. Soft costs in particular, I think soft costs and customer acquisition costs are still shockingly high in the residential market, but in our markets, they've come way down. I mean, our customer acquisition costs are like under 1%. The engineering tool set has improved. So (laughs) when I started, we had to do custom spreadsheets just to do really simple engineering calcs, like how many modules we could have in a string on an inverter. And now they're tools that just spit out the answers. And so you can do the engineering work and design work in a fraction of time. So it's been innovation across a number of different fronts. And I think there's more of that to come, although I think the a lot of the, I think, continued cost declines are going to come from, I think, changes in the way the market works, changes in the way supply chain connects to the end customers. I think there are some business model changes from here that might drive kind of the next wave of cost reduction and value creation. There's still a little more juice to squeeze out of the lemon, but you know, there's a lot less juice at a dollar than there was at $9. And so I think business model innovation is on the horizon. I think that's going to be probably the next wave of driving value and cost reduction. How big a role did government play, whether it be subsidies, the Sunshot program or or others? I mean, was was that was that an essential component of these deployment gains or yeah, curious your take there. Oh yeah. So it totally was. So I think when you say government, the federal government has played a role and and I can speak to that. Before I do, I just want to say that state leadership has driven a lot, state level leadership has driven a lot of this growth. And so we did an episode with Adam Browning. So ah, um, and we, we we talked a lot about that. Yeah. Adam is one of the few people I think you might predate me in solar. 
by just a little bit. Yeah, so Adam's been working on those issues since the very, very beginning. But yeah, so in California, there were early day subsidy programs that right, you know, now look kind of unbelievably lucrative, but at the time were really necessary. So there was a, for example, a commercial rebate program where you got $4.50 a watt cash rebate, which now seems insane, but at the time you couldn't get a project done without it. And then actually a Republican governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, passed this really massive legislation to do three gigawatts of DG solar in California. I'm trying to remember that it's been so long. I can't remember the name of the bill, but it was transformative for the industry. And then there's been renewable portfolio standards that have driven the utility scale market and Cal- started in California, but moved to many other states. We also, we have a large business in New England, actually, the, our office with the most people, our biggest office is in Lowell, Massachusetts. And that a lot of the growth there was driven by a state level policy that was put in place under the Deval Patrick administration. And they did something really interesting that I think was kind of the precursor of the community solar market, which was, is this bill called the Green Communities Act, where they realized that one of the problems with kind of megawatt scale solar was, hey, you need to find really the perfect site that has all the right attributes. You need to find a low cost site to put the system. You need to find that low cost site needs to be owner occupied it needs to have the right usage profile. It needs to be on the right rate schedule. And so they passed this Green Communities Act, which allowed you to decouple those things and say, hey, I have the right site here and I can sell the power to a, another consumer within the same load zone that needs it. And that was wildly successful. They coupled that with an SREC program. That program, has, there have been a number of programs that have kind of riffed off that over time, but I think it really kicked off the community solar market. So state level policy is big. Federal policy is also had the investment tax credit for the majority of my career in solar. And that's stimulated tremendous amount of growth and also just brought a lot of capital into the market. Tax advantaged entities who do tax advantage investing have really brought you know tremendous amount of capital into renewable energy. So that's helped. And then I think during like the Great Recession, certainly the DOE loan program helped make a lot of large scale projects happen that would not have happened otherwise. And also there was a in the Reinvestment Act, there were clean renewable energy bonds that drove a lot of CNI solar for government entities. So there's been a lot of support along the way. It's it's less of a factor now because the cost of solar energy is competitive fossil fuels with minimal subsidies. So, but, you know, over the two decades I've been doing this, it's been a tremendously important part. So how much do you think about and resource towards advocacy at the policy level, if at all? A lot. (laughs) So we have an amazing policy team and I can't actually, it's a number of people. I'm trying to remember how many people it is, but it's more than five, led by our VP, Alon Gutierrez. And we primarily work at the state level, although we are doing some work at the federal level, in particular, more monitoring, but some participation in FERC, FERC proceedings. But classically, we've been very active through SIA and other local industry organizations in helping to lead 
advocacy and development of regulations and even at times legislative action. So in the markets that we're in, we tend to take a try and take a policy leadership position. So very active in Massachusetts, New York, Illinois, California, some of the emerging community solar markets or potential community solar markets like Virginia and Pennsylvania. So it's a big area of focus for us. It's We think it's really important. I don't remember the latest figures from a penetration standpoint, but I, I know that they're much higher than they were and much lower than we need them to be. So and if, if you know them, by the way, I'd, I'd love to know. Yeah, I don't want to give you wrong numbers, but yeah, it's it's in the single digits. For, for uh-huh. sure. Yeah. But when you think about the ground that's left to cover, what are the keys? You know, what what needs to happen? You know, what are the whether it's one lever or two levers or three levers or like what are the big things that need to happen in order for us to get there? Yeah, I think I think there are a few different levers. I think that. So I think there's different there's different problems depending on what type of market you're in. If you're in a new market, then I think there are baseline policies, regulations that need to be put in place to allow solar to compete. And, you know, some, I mean, the power market, the power industry is so complicated because each state really has its own way of functioning. So there are deregulated markets and there are different flavors of deregulations. There are regulated markets where the utilities control everything from generation all the way through to distribution. And so in those different markets, you need to either reform the markets or have a different policy strategy. So if you're in a regulated market where the utilities own everything from generation all the way through to distribution, then the only way to get renewable energy adoption is through the regulated utility. So you you need to work with the regulated utility and the Public Utilities Commission to force or incentivize the utility to move from fossil fuels to renewables. And that's actually really hard for the private sector to do. So that's, that's a challenging one. And less regulated markets, you need to make sure that the economics allow solar to compete. It definitely helps to have a stick part with an RPS with some kind of alternative compliance penalty if the utilities aren't making the standard. It's really hard to motivate change without some mandate for change. But there's policies beyond that that I think are needed to make, to really create a level playing field so that renewables can compete. And, you know, it's different in different markets. So those are important things. In markets where you have a lot more penetration, you're starting to deal with real issues around intermittency and what that creates, like the duck curve problem in California and the curtailment. And, and you need to really think about how you're going to solve those problems and create the right incentive structure or markets to get a lot of storage adoption so that you can continue to increase penetration of renewables without creating problems on the grid. So there, I wish there were like a few silver bullets that would solve all the problems, but you really need a lot of different solutions and those solutions need to be customized to the market situation you're in. When you think about the decarbonized future, do you think about, and it's, I mean, it's only a one word difference, so it's, you could say it's semantics, but are, are we 
should we aspire to a hundred percent clean future or a hundred percent renewables future? Okay, so you're like asking about like nuclear carbon capture things like that. Yeah, I'm. I'm mostly asking. I guess one, can renewables get there? And two, even if it can, like, is that the goal, or is the goal just to get to clean as as quickly and efficiently as possible? Yeah, it's a good question. I think if it's truly clean. Personally, I believe we should get to clean as quickly as possible. I think you get into, I think you can get into arguments and debates about what's really clean, like is nuclear clean? And there's different types of nuclear and I'm not an expert in nuclear, so I'd probably prefer not to like go down that rabbit hole. But if you can agree on a definition of clean, then I think, yeah, I don't think it necessarily has to be all renewable. It's hard for me to see what else there is that's viable and cost effective just from where I'm sitting. And like, I haven't, I haven't seen viable plans. I mean, I understand why there are people really interested in carbon sequestration and in principle, I'm not opposed to it, but like, it just, it looks quite expensive. It looks really challenging to deploy. It looks really challenging to scale and just having been around the industry a long time and seeing how there are incumbents who have inertia, whether they be in the power industry or whether they be in the generally in the energy industry in the fossil fuel segment, you know, they have an interest in protecting the value of existing assets. (laughs) And so carbon sequestration is a way to do that. And so, yeah, just, I haven't seen a viable path that isn't almost all renewables but I'm not opposed to it if there is one. I just haven't seen it. Yeah. So, I mean, caveat here is I am far from an expert, but it seems if I ask different people about, for example, is solar clean? The answer I get is that it depends because some of it depends on the base load power and what the source of that is. And is it coming from fossil fuels or from natural gas or, or things like that? So, how do you th- think about that? Is solar clean? Does it depend? And what does it depend on, if so? I definitely think it's clean. I'm having trouble imagining a case where there's a viable argument for not being clean. I think it's more or less clean depending on what you're replacing. Yeah, if you're replacing coal, then it's cleanest. If you're replacing natural gas, it's still very clean. If you're retiring a nuclear plant, again, there's an argument, is nuclear clean or not? But maybe you start to be like, oh, okay, well that wasn't a fossil fuel, it wasn't emitting carbon. And so, you know, that's different. But yeah, I, I haven't, I haven't, like, I think it's clean in all cases. And it's just a question of how clean. Yeah, I think, and I, I don't want to misspeak here, but I think the argument is that until storage gets solved, long duration storage, then intermittency is such that you need to use something to fill the significant gaps. And, and the lowest cost options in many places today are still dirty. Yeah. So, okay. Now I understand a little better. Yeah. So I still have not seen any math or economics or study that show that adding solar and replacing fossil fuels, even with the challenge of the intermittency and the need to have dirty peakers. Peakers. Yeah. I didn't mention peakers, but that was the word I was looking yeah, for. Peaker plants. Yeah. yeah. Peaker plants. Peaker plants around still isn't a huge net positive in terms of carbon. That being said, I think you're hitting on a good point, which is that as you get more solar penetration, 
you do need to think about how you're going to deal with the intermittency and how you deal with it cleanly. And we are seeing some states start to take this problem on. Actually, Massachusetts has something called, I think it's called the Clean Peak Standard, where they're trying to deal with exactly that. They're saying, hey, we during peak times, we want to make sure that we're dealing with that excess capacity need, not through dirty sources, but with clean sources. And so that might be, in their case, it's going to be mostly energy storage, probably mostly lithium-ion battery energy storage. But yeah, I mean, that's a problem you need to deal with. There are ways to deal with the capacity need that are clean. And so you would make solar cleaners. Yeah, is solar less clean if when the cloud comes over or when the you hit the net of the duct, you're turning on something really dirty? Yeah. I, again, I haven't seen anything that says it's still not better than the alternative. But yeah, we should deal with that problem. We should deal with the ramping needs. We should deal with the intermittency. And there are ways to deal with it. Yeah, you said long duration storage. And I, I think long duration, well, true, and it depends what you mean by long duration storage, whether you're talking about four and six hours or whether you're talking about days <laughs> and weeks. Well, it depends what we need, right? I mean, I've heard, at least from some, that we need seasonal storage to truly account for the intermittency in much of the world. Yeah. But so, yeah, but I guess if, if one would, would take issue with whether we actually need that and whether it's as big a problem as people say, then that's something different. Yeah. So not having, I'm not an academic. There are organizations that do these studies and do these long-term models. And I think there are different perspectives on the need for seasonal storage. Personally, just logically, it makes sense to me that we would need seasonal storage. We're going to have a bunch of solar. It's mostly going to produce in the summer and the shoulder season. It's not going to produce much in the winter. And especially if we're going to do as much electrification as we want to do and move to like electric heating, you're going to need a lot of power in the winter. And so I think the idea of, I don't think we're at the point where it's, it's the issue, but if we're talking about a hundred percent or 90% or 80%, you know, over the next few decades, Biden's 2050 plan, then it makes sense to me that you would need seasonal storage. And I don't think that seasonal storage is going to be lithium ion batteries. But I think there are solutions. There, there's solutions. I mean, I, th- I think the green hydrogen and the idea of electrolysis and, a, and fuel cell and, and using gas as a storage mechanism, which scales with steel tanks <laughs> as opposed to lithium ion modules, makes a ton of sense. But we're at the very early stages of the need. And so we're at the very early stages of the deployment, too. But yeah, I mean, I logically, it feels like that is a need. So in your business then, or I guess your three businesses, as you said, when you think about that tip of the spear innovation, whether it's flow batteries or green hydrogen or fuel cells or other things that you mentioned, how much do you need to think about that? How much do you need to try to pick winners and guess what the future will be and and are you putting any capital to work in in those areas or engaging with those companies that are maybe pre pre deployment ready yeah we talk about it all the time it's i mean we're where we are we need to be just slightly ahead of the market demand not five and ten years ahead because we're not developing the technology we'll partner with the technology providers and actually our ceo mark swanson was just talking to me about some long duration storage providers and how we might be able to partner with them on pilot projects. And we may do some of that, but 
we need to be just slightly ahead of where the market demand is. And so we have not yet seen a market signal telling us that we need to do more than four or six hours of storage. And, you know, when that comes, we'll need to be slightly ahead of it when it comes. And so, yeah, I think we do talk to alternative chemistry battery providers. We're interested in green hydrogen and poked around a little bit. And I think that's a really exciting area that I personally just think makes a lot of sense. But we're just, there's not a lot of demand in the U.S. right now. And so it's not a big focus of ours. But yeah, I think over the next 10 years, it'll probably change. And what about when it comes to the actual you know, materials that go into the panels and, and things like that? Is it the same answer or how, how do you think about that stuff? The materials that goes in the panel. So, I mean, the materials that go- like perovskite or just as new breakthroughs come out, I mean, do you, do you feel like the market's kind of decided and standardized around, around the materials that are used today or is that still up for grabs in some regard? Yeah, so I could be wrong. I'm a little bit of a naysayer on new materials for the workhorse component of the solar power plants, the solar modules, or even for call it, you know, sub four, six hour energy storage. So it seems like uh, silicon and there's all kinds of cool things they do with the silicon, but silicon is going to win for the solar modules and lithium ion is going to win for the batteries. And partly it's because I've seen this movie before. I started my career in semiconductors and in the early days, people were talking about alternative materials to silicon, like gallium arsenide and other such materials that the physicists could tell you had you know better properties. But in the end, just the momentum and the inertia and the advantages on the manufacturing side and capital equipment and the supply chain being so mature, like no one ever did anything except silicon. And we saw that in the early days when I was my first 10 years in the solar industry, everybody was talking about alternative materials. So there were CIGS modules. They were talking about thin film, various thin films, materials. And there was a lot of venture money Solyndra probably being the most famous <laughs> one that failed, but a lot of venture money went into these alternative material startups that in, in a lot of them even got to production that were making small amounts of non-silicon or non-crystalline silicon solar modules. But in the end, other than First Solar, which is an interesting exception, really none of them made it because over time, just the inertia of an entire industry working with a single material and the fact that, hey, if I want to expand a plant, I just call somebody and they know how to build it for me and all the capital equipment just shows up and is tuned. It's just too great. And I think we're seeing that with batteries too, with lithium ion. It's it's the same thing as silicon. There's a physicist on a spreadsheet can show that there's a material that's better, but it's just, there's so much inertia behind it. Now for long duration, maybe it's a different application and maybe there's something else. If you're talking about really long duration, it's hard for me to imagine that some material beats lithium ion at scale for like four and six hours. It's just got so much momentum behind it. So switching gears for a second, I, I'd love to just talk a little bit about jobs because as the solar industry matures, there's clearly a big opportunity for new job creation. What is the best source of talent for those jobs? And and if you look at say traditional oil and gas, are you guys the enemy or do they see you as part of a prosperous future for all? Yes, that's an interesting question. So on the jobs, yeah, our industry is interesting because it is growing 
and it's young. So the challenge, so it's, it's hard to find good people these days, right? In our area, in particular, you know, engineers or experienced construction managers, those industries have largely remained strong during the pandemic. So I know there's a lot of unemployment, but there's not a lot of unemployment in the sectors and geographies that we work in. So talent is talent recruiting. It's a major issue for us. And, you know, we unfortunately, I guess, using probably the real conventional recruiting techniques that everybody else uses, like the LinkedIn's and, you know, really popular job boards of the world. And, you know, there's fewer events to go to. So that's a downer. But you know, we use pretty conventional recruiting techniques. We're trying to mature and think about how to innovate there, but we have an amazing recruiting department, but largely using conventional techniques. With regards to the oil and gas, I will say I don't interact a lot with the oil and gas sector. I can say, and so I don't know how they think about our our jobs and our job creation. And I think that, but I can just hearing how the executives at Big Oil have started to talk about their future, it does seem like there's been a real shift from, okay, we're going to dabble in this renewable stuff. We need to keep an eye on it. Yeah, we accept global warming, but we're an oil company to, yeah, there's the future is not oil and we need to think about a, a different approach to energy largely need to really get into power and we need to get into renewables. And so there's almost been an acceptance of that future that I talked about at the beginning of our conversation, that the future is renewables and that electrification is coming. The EV adoption is just going to continue to grow and that you can't be a big oil company 50 years from now. And so I think that that, there's just been a shift and that's really only happened in the last couple of years, probably hastened by the pandemic and the crash in oil prices. I know they've rebounded a little bit, but when they went really down, I think everybody had to really think about, hey, what's our future look like? So that's that's been exciting. And so how is big oil going to play in this industry? I think TBD, but at least the executives are talking like they understand they need to be in this industry and that if they're going to have a future as a big player in energy, they need to be power and they need to be in renewables. So maybe a relevant question there is, what does the competitive landscape look like? Is it really fragmented and regional today, or are there a handful of players that have a lion's share of the market? And how do you think it'll look in five or 10 years? Yeah. I, so the downstream industry, the industry we play in is, if you think look at it nationally, somewhat fragmented in any particular state market, there'll be still a few players that have a significant portion of the market, but with long tail, a lot of other players. So our part of the industry is fragmented. The, the upstream part, like the the companies that are making the solar modules or the inverters and the racking is also very fragmented and becoming more fragmented. There are, I think, 41 Bloomberg New Energy Finance comes out with a tier one module supplier list. And I think there's 41 OEMs on the list and it's growing. So it was like 30 something and 20 something and it's growing. So it's becoming more fragmented. What do I think it's going to look like in the future? I think it's too fragmented now. I think that there's probably still some fragmentation downstream, but I think there'll be more standardization in the product mix. The supply chain will become more sophisticated. I think that downstream businesses will, the fragmented part might look somewhat like what it does today, but there's going to be more of a consolidated supply chain and logistics solutions feeding them. 
And because that's, I think, really the way you get business model innovation and really continue to drive down costs. So I do think we'll see some consolidation, but I think in certain parts of the industry, in the end, the actual putting steel in the ground is a local game. And so I don't see that there's going to be a national company that's like, hey, we put all the steel in the ground. But I do think there might be consolidation in the supply of those local companies in terms of, you know, here's the steel, here's prefabricated parts, you know, here's a plan. We're supplying you with a logistics machine and a capability that really takes a lot of the the work out and cost out of each project. And given the challenge in recruiting, is robotics and automation something that you think about at all? And do you think it's got any credible role to play in the future? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. We do think about it, but we haven't, I think it's very early stages. I'll just say that. And I saw the first, I visited my first robotics installation startup probably four or five years ago. And, you know, it it was, I think, kind of a classic startup experience where like, I looked at the presentation, I got the idea, I thought it was really interesting, I thought it could really change things. And then I go out there and visit it and watch the robot work. And we just see how many actual issues there are with really using these technologies, like the robot kept stopping, they kept having to do it. It couldn't deal with this type of train and that type of train. And so you, in the end, you had a lot of issues that were that were going to require a lot of capital and time to work through. And then just a heap of restrictions on where the technology, I mean, humans are really flexible. Robots are much, I know they're getting more flexible, much less so. And so we, we still haven't seen that yet on the installation side. I think we aren't using them, but there's some robotic solutions like on the maintenance side and washing side, I think that are helping. And I think we'll see that first because those are more repetitive tasks. But on the installation side, are we going to get there? Maybe eventually, but the field conditions still seem too variable for the robotic technology that I have seen. I know we're running up on time, but one final topic I just love to hit briefly is we talked earlier in this discussion about the importance of state level politics. Given the outsized role that state level politics plays, putting personal politics aside, were you on pins and needles from a professional standpoint about the outcome of the recent presidential election or or was it kind of a non-factor one way or another? <laughs> really? You want me to put personal politics aside? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's your choice. You, you can feel free to incorporate them, but you're not required to. I was totally on pins and needles. I was like, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I won't get too political, but yeah, I I was fearful for our country. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm unsure what support we're going to get from the federal government. I know that this administration has a completely different view on climate change than the last administration. They obviously believe in the science, but also believe it's a big problem and a problem that the federal government should help solve. And so I have some optimism there. I do. And, you know, there's this infrastructure bill, which I haven't studied, but has a clean energy component and has a power sector component. And I think that's all positive. The politics at the federal level are, you know, just challenging with, you know, the Senate and the supermajority and all that. And so what can we get done? I hope we get done a lot because we need to get a lot done. And we should have, given how big an emitter we are, we should have 
federal leadership on climate and the clean power plan and the EPA regs that the Obama administration put in and then the last administration did away with and this administration will probably try and bring back, you know, it's a start, but it's only a start. And so I think we do need to do a lot more. And so I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic, but I'm also not banking on it just because of the way federal politics work. But yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it's definitely an exciting, like I was talking to another clean energy CEO last week and he's just like, this is our time. Like, this is our time. This decade is our time for so it's many. Like, like the Goonies. What's that? Like the Goonies. Goonies. I like the Goonies. <laughs> yeah. This is our time. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. I, yeah. Totally. I didn't know that. No one's going to get that because no one's as old as we are. <laughs> I made my kids watch Goonies and uh, they were one of the, oh, it's so old. It's so old. They said the graphics are bad. I'm like, it's not graphics. It's live action. But okay. And then 30 minutes in, they were hooked. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a great, great movie. Yeah. Well, let's see. What haven't I asked you? I guess the last thing is just for anyone listening that is jazzed about what you're doing, who do you want to hear from? How can listeners be helpful to you? It could be the open jobs that you have. It could be certain types of customers that make a good profile for you. I mean, you don't let me put words in your mouth. How, how can we help? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So we're definitely recruiting. We're hiring. So you can go to Borrego. We just changed our website. I don't want to get it wrong. <laughs> I think it's BorregoEnergy.com. BorregoEnergy.com. And there's a careers page. And we're hiring number of uh, positions across the country and, you know, ranges from engineers, construction managers, specialty trades like information technology, but also we employ a lot of electricians and technicians for operation and maintenance. So if you're in that part of the work stream in the trades, we're hiring too. So that's exciting. If you're in the business of owning generation, trying to find projects, trying to get a project executed, need help maintaining a project, we work with owners across all those areas. And yeah, and then we talked about the policy side. If you're in particular in the states that we're active in throughout New England, the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic, the West and the Midwest, and you think there's an opportunity to partner there to get things done, you know, like it needs takes coalitions to do good work. And so those are other opportunities. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an exciting time. It's, it's definitely our time, our being the whole renewable energy industry. So it's going to take us all. But I think 10 years from now, we're going to look back and we're going to have made an amazing amount of progress. And anything I didn't ask you, Mike, that I should have or any parting words for listeners? And that, that might have been it, what you just said. That yeah, was a good, perfectly that, good point to end on. That was my raw, raw finish. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I should have asked that, like, you know, right before you said that. Otherwise, now anything you say is going to be anticlimactic. Yeah, yeah, I should. I need to develop a second one. But that was Encore. All, yeah, yeah. Well, awesome. Such a wide-ranging, fascinating discussion. I learned a ton, which means listeners probably will, too. I can't thank you enough for making the time and coming on the show. Uh, great. Thanks a lot for having me, Jason. Hey everyone, Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. 
Thank you. Thank you.